Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Clinicians are retaliated against and intimidated into silence so deeply and so pervasively, it's almost in the background today. It just kind of goes with the gig. But let's remember these tactics are used in nations not allowing free speech. North Korea comes to mind, Iran, China, and of course, who's in the news today? Russia. When we lose free speech, we are no better than automatons. Bigs today are signaling this culture, you are a cog. You're not a heart, you're not a brain, you're not a soul. Don't mess with the meat grinder of the bigs or we will chew you to pieces. It could be your career ender. This does not exist in free market surgery. This does not exist in direct primary care or the whole direct contracting market. There might be a one-off here or there, but I know of not a single case of muzzling in the direct cash pay world. Okay, so today I'm gonna do something a little different. I'm gonna read a letter from an anonymous doc, something today's guest knows a lot about. She posts notes like this every few days on LinkedIn, where we became friends. You ask why doctors are silent. The EMR are a ball and chain to physicians. We are tracked through them. I recently wrote a prescription for ivermectin for a patient with informed consent. She was vaccinated. I received five letters threatening my medical license almost immediately my hospital privileges, and my insurance contracts. I would not have received five letters if I killed somebody in negligence or malpractice. If I have my license pulled, I will no longer be able to help my patients. I'm going to take a break from this record right now and say that in Texas and in most states, you're not going to get your license pulled for prescribing ivermectin. You will for alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual mispredation, but I don't know of any state that's going to pull your license for ivermectin. But Anyway, so it's fear we're hearing here. Let's continue. I speak to patients on a one-on-one basis, but speaking out would destroy my family. I have children. Quite frankly, I have seen that patients want me to risk myself for them, but are wholly unwilling to support their physician. The population is just lazy. I can save your life, but I get paid less for my work than some hairdressers. My education is not valued by society. It's supported by the rise of the advanced practice provider. I am almost done with my profession. I hope to retire in the next one to three years, decades before I had planned. I actually love what I do, but I cannot take this toxic and broken system any longer. That is why so many have retired in the past couple of years, and this trend will surely continue. And it's a voice, our guest today, the invisible docs and nurses muzzled by bigs. Lead well healthcare consultants. She's often referred to as the doctor whisperer because of her tenacious commitment to improving the healthcare industry for docs and consumers. Through her reprints of deeply personal letters from providers who have been profoundly disrespected by the suits, by the out-of-touch leadership that is the hospital today, Ann Richardson works with administrators and clinicians 
helping them deliver the highest possible patient care through program development and training, leadership development, and operational effectiveness. She's a fierce patient advocate, but really she's passionate for docs and nurses too, anybody on the front line. And she's passionate about being a voice for those frontline workers to implement their ideas to improve patient care, which it's just kind of common sense for CEOs and smaller companies. You better listen to your frontline, but the bigs don't seem to listen. Ann and I became acquainted and we shared the same concerns that bigs are exemplifying very poor leadership these days through weak values, bad morals and ethics, and it just may sink them. It may sink them. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Ann Richardson, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. Well, any comments before we get going? So, yeah. So what you described is me in a nutshell. I have, for listeners, over 25 plus years of leadership experience in hospitals, mainly academic medical centers, but also community hospital systems uh, in New England primarily. And I've done a lot of consulting um, over the years as well. But I'm a fierce patient advocate, and as a non-clinical leader, although I'm clinically savvy, um, the best way I always knew how to advocate for patients was to advocate for physicians and everyone who cared for them. And that meant even schedulers and those around access. So that's been my mantra, and that's been my passion and my mission. And over the years, I was pretty punished and abused and silenced from the beginning because I was told I cared too much and so forth. So... I'm on the outside now. Um, unlikely I'll ever go back on the inside, I call it, because I feel like it's doing time. I write about that a lot. Doctors and nurses appreciate that. They all feel like when they're on the payroll, they're doing time. And for me, that's what it felt like. Uh, walk on eggshells and I was frightened. So my mission is to not create um, because it's already there, but increase awareness around the silencing and the code of silence that goes on in medicine, which is dangerous medicine because if patients don't have a voice and if they were to know that doctors and nurses didn't have a voice in an employed model, um, that's as dangerous as it gets when you're sick. People that are listening to this show, some of them are just consumers that are out there. They're interested in this topic. If you think about the odds, it's almost like a Russian roulette with really bad odds because if there's less than a 50-50 chance that you're going to get good care because your physician is burned out. Now I'm talking primary care. It's exceeds 50%. If you're female in primary care, it's way higher than 50%. It's closer to 60%. That's pretty bad odds that somebody who is taking care of you is supposed to diagnose, treat, understand your heart, your mind, because so much of primary care is really mental health. If they're not mentally healthy themselves, how are they supposed to help me? Yeah. So one of the things that I focus on in, in my conversations and in my writing and people that reach out to me is the moral injury that can lead to burnout. And the reason I say that is because, as you know, I'm amazed and I don't even like to use the word resiliency because everybody, the superhero thing with clinicians is just unfair and inappropriate term. But most doctors and nurses and clinicians that are still in medicine today, yeah, they've maybe they're burned out, but they're more morally injured because they're still passionate about providing great care for their patients, whether you're primary care or you're a surgeon um, and everything in between. But they are asked to do more with less. We got to meet the numbers. You know, we got to get that backlog with the pandemic and so forth. So they're morally injured because they know that they don't have the resources, whether it be time, supplies, staffing and so forth to provide a level of care that they know the patient needs. And that wears on them. So it's not so much because they're burned out. Yes, they're tired, 
but it's a constraint of not admitting to a patient that they're maybe giving less optimal care because it's the best they can do. And of course they wouldn't say that. And they go above and beyond. I don't talk to any nurse or doctor that is still in the inside that isn't going above and beyond. And when they can't go above and beyond, that's when they leave. And the exodus that we have, um, I write about that often. I don't, I don't think hospitals are prepared at the turnover rates we're going to see in 2023, that what we're seeing now is going to be like a day at Disneyland as far as I'm concerned. So here's what I hear you saying is that there's a giant exodus happening. And you say this on LinkedIn a lot too, that the administrators are going to be shocked. I think they know something's coming, something's going to be coming because it's happening right now. They're in the middle of a tsunami. I mean, you and I look at the dark side sometimes. It's like when you buy a new Tesla, you think everything's a Tesla on the streets. Do you think you and I are projecting this downturn or do you think it's real? I mean, I, again, I don't have any scientific or academic study. It's just a small litmus test. But so if you look at my what I write, my engagement, sometimes my engagement is you know medium, but sometimes it's extremely high. But what you don't see is the behind the scenes messages that come to me and why they have to come to me. A doctor wrote to me again last night and he's written to me before. And I'm reaching out in private because I can't engage you. My, you know, my system monitors, you know, when I get in trouble, the story I wrote this morning, same thing. They can't like, they can't comment anything. There isn't a day goes by that. I don't have a doctor nurses. We know, but doctor that they are not even talking about their exit strategy because they know that as soon as they do, they'll be gone. And many of them are going to be gone starting in January. So I did a post about a few weeks ago, and I said that after I posted that, uh, within hours, I had 24 doctors reach out to me to say, count me in, I'm one of those people, but you're right, I'm quiet about it. Nobody knows other than my family. So, you know, it's a small little test. And, and, and I'm proud to say this, though. What are many, not all, but what are many of those doctors going in? Um, direct care models. Mm-hmm a surgeon that reached out to me recently. And I'm, I say that with a smile because why they're still passionate. That's what I say. They're not burned out. There's a difference. Burned out people go do something else. The ones that are morally injured and they're abused and silenced, um, they stay in medicine and they find a way that they can get their voice back in autonomy and do what they do best. And those I'm not frowning upon doctors who leave medicine and do something else. Not at all. But um, I love as a patient advocate, I love when I hear a doctor finding a better way to practice medicine. You said a lot here. You talked about it, lost autonomy. You've talked about the reasons for burnout. And we don't need to revisit all those tired reasons why people are exhausted from the big systems. But I'm glad to hear direct care is on the table because I was on a show basically called Side Hustles. It's doctors, you know, doing different gigging and different side things to basically work harder for less money. It was a sad show, but I understand why they're there. But Direct care seems to be like the oasis today because of the way that the payment model works. You're paid monthly on a subscription basis, just like a health club. You're paid high and low tide. Pandemic couldn't have been a lower tide for doctor volume because four or five months, it was basically phantom volume. And direct care was, was the remedy, as was value-based care, which was capitated. So I'm glad the word is getting out about direct care it was kind of a secret for the last 20 years. And it's not anymore, is it? Well, no. And I, I, I know that I've talked to many doctors, actually specialists in the country about this that are in academic medicine and, and training and talking to residents. Um, so I speak to this a lot. So you have a lot of residents who come out of training, you know, making 50,000 a year. And so they are inclined to go to the employed model, which is more than 70% of doctors. Why? 
because even if their salary is on the lower end, it's still three to four times what they make today. Uh, and then they immediately get into a situation with houses, cars, you know, private education for the kids. More and more of them are being educated on the DPC model and direct care model for specialists, I think is great. And I mean, it's, it's that and also there's a fear factor there. So not only do they want the financial security, which is why they sign up for an employed model, but we are trying to educate doctors in general. And in fact, I talk to doctors every day who are senior, but there's things that they miss. And the thing that I bring to them is the administrative side of the psyche of what the administration is doing to them. And that is helping them with their contracts and addendums. And if you're going to, if you insist on being employed, make sure you, you know, go over this, this, and this. Uh, so that's one of the things that I advise on, but I've talked to people about why they wouldn't consider, especially in primary care, um, a DPC model. And you know, what's sad. Some of them are so morally injured and so much pain. They've lost their jobs because they spoke up for patient advocacy and they just don't have the will to start over again, not start over, but uh, they're just at a point in their career. They're so, uh, they're in a lot of pain. And as you know, there's a lot of people that are um, under mental health care because of what the big systems have done to them. So um, the silencing, because uh, I've been there as well, uh, has killed people because people have taken their lives. And um, I've talked to people who've attempted suicide and Fortunately, it was a failed attempt, but the silencing is also deadly because when you silence physicians and we don't do right by our patients, we know we're having bad patient outcomes. And guess what? <laughs> They're not reporting it, right? Well, so let's talk a little bit about direct care. There are two flavors of direct care, and I would refer people to type in primary care cures, Chris Habig, if you want to hear about Freedom Works and their own 100% success model, if you want to go independent, even with no patients at all. Or you could go listen to Primary Care Cares Plum Health podcast. You could also yep. do Atlas MD. So that's yep. a podcast, actually, because Atlas MD, I have two of them, that'll give you the guidelines or someone to call that's free consultant, basically, to get you independent immediately and with great success. So those are complimentary services that they can guide because that's one of the... Well, you got to buy software, but you know it doesn't cost anything. And that's 10% of all DPC today, about 2,000 practitioners are practicing just setting up a shingle. We talked to a surgeon who will be on our show this week, who is an orthopedic surgeon. He hung up a shingle. He doesn't even have four walls. He consults wherever the other doctors are. So this is not just primary care. He's making what he should be making. He's working ridiculously low hours. He doesn't have but $2,000 in overhead, and that's his software. I mean, you know, he's... Anyway, you don't have to be in primary care to be morally injured. It can be surgery too. So that's 10%, about 2,000. 20,000 plus have to be serving the 20 million people that are in direct primary care through their employer. So there has been a new ecosystem and that's been set up for hiring primary care physicians, mostly wider scopes so of family practice, DOs, internal medicine with wide scope, not as much pediatricians or OB-GYN, but they're getting hired too by companies mm -hmm. that are starting the large employers, the jumbos. So I've got 17 shows of CEOs and CMOs on that very topic. In other words, the water's safe for 20,000 PCPs who have left the bigness, the muzzling for, it's a job working for a company that's now serving employers. And they, the employers are renewing at 98%. The doctor satisfaction, if you look at the NPS scores, are in the 88 to 98% range. 
Hospitals are in the 30 to 50% range, right? That's a stretch because they're lying, the doctors. I don't know that most of them aren't even going to publish it because they're so embarrassed by their MTS scores. Right. You can't fix what you don't measure. Anyway, so that, that's the point of this show today is that there are safe waters. Are you scared to go out on your own? Yeah, I would be, but not if you have 100% success. Are you scared to go work for another suit? Well, everybody I've talked to are doctors. I mean, the people running these groups are white coats. They're a little more sympathetic, right? Right. And I the, the reason I talk to um, educating doctors that are more junior is because the more senior you get, the more burned out you get, the more moral injury, the more exhausted you get, and the more fatalistic it becomes. It's like, oh, my God, if I'm just going to leave this model, I'm just going to leave medicine. And I hear that a lot, too. So it's getting physicians earlier on as we can to understand the, their model options um, while they still are passionate about practicing medicine and uh, the system as a whole hasn't totally killed their spirit and their soul, right? You know, what's interesting is before you date a guy or a girl, you can find out through references whether they're a, an abuser or a beater or a... Yeah. You can do the same with Glassdoor with yep. these employees I'm talking about. You don't have yep. to get anymore. Glassdoor does have lots of fake stuff in it. I've seen hospitals, they'll have a run of bad threes and twos and one stars. And then suddenly you'll see like 25 or five stars. And they're all like, I love working here. This is a great place to work. And they're all fake accounts, just like Elon Musk didn't buy Twitter because over half the accounts were fake. He was getting a pig and a poke. And that's some of Glassdoor, but that's mostly in the big systems. The the small independent employers that are in, in my world aren't make up stuff because the glass door ratings were pretty good yeah no i'm not i'm not surprised by that yeah i that's why i wrote recently about uh, u.s world the news report and only because being on the inside of hospitals i know what they do with the data to manipulate it to and uh as you know in some organizations and in some you know i'm gonna put it out there with forbes i uh, you know did a survey recently that came out this summer that was rating the top employers, not just hospitals. And there were some hospitals that made that system. And I reached out to some of the people there because I knew the system well and said, are you kidding me? How did that even make it as a top employer, let alone a hospital? And they said, we were mandated to complete these surveys. We knew they weren't confidential. And so we lied. And so the results were incredibly skewed and they made that list. Well, you can bet that they're putting that on billboards and websites and all that. And it's all fluff. And there's too much of that. And because of the downsizing in healthcare with mergers and acquisitions, that's where I say it's getting worse. The BS is getting worse and the silencing is getting worse and the ineptitude, the complicity, all, all of those things. It's, it's getting worse because CEOs and boards are scrambling to survive. Do you think that the hospital model is broken or are there some healthy places to work still that are maybe smaller big systems? that are not toxic? Are there some enlightened leaders running some of these systems that know what they're doing in terms of bringing the heart back to medicine and bringing a healthy vigor to free speech, to the things you and I value? Well, uh, th yes, they do exist. I mean, I don't want to paint a broad brush. That, that's why I'm selective in my words to say often or many. I don't want to make it sound like all hospitals and employed medical groups are bad or toxic. But this seems to be a prevalence of silencing that goes on out there. I hear from people, physicians and surgeons from academic medical centers throughout the country that are in the top 10. 
And the reason they reach out to me when they first engage with me was I don't like administration. I don't like administrators, but I like you and you get it. And they're silenced and they're concerned about um, the quality of care. They're concerned about the moral injury that they and their teams are subjected to, but they're not allowed to talk about it. And they feel that they have a target on their back. So those are some of the best institutions in the world, let alone in the country. But to go back to that, um, some of these organizations I know, and I have respect for people in leadership roles and in their defense, and many of them I know, chief financial officers and others, they, they are wearing many hats themselves because um, the complexities of running healthcare organizations and these systems sometimes are financially strained and they say they can't afford to hire people, three people to do a job. But what does it take to just be kind and compassionate and go out on the floor and engage your doctors and your nurses and things like that? So the common complaint is these are leaders, even at the mid-level, uh, not just executive C-suite, who sadly, a lot of them still work from home with a pandemic, which is ridiculous. I've talked to surgeons who say our leadership doesn't even know where the ORs are. We don't even know what they look like. I've talked to nurses in leadership and say we've never met our director of nurses. And these aren't always in big medical centers. So that is a common theme. Yeah. So, and occasionally I'll get, well, our CEO doesn't know. And I said, well, it's his or her job to know. So if they don't know and people aren't, you have to ask this question, why don't you have the transparency and the communication? And what is the CEO doing and how is he or she leading that people aren't communicating up the chain of command, what some of the vulnerabilities are. And I say opportunities. I try not to say problems because I think there's a solution to all of it. Mm -hmm. Is there any clients you have, man, that listen to you and then implement on the front line this on the floor change and then keep it in some kind of a systematic way? Or are they playing tribute to your bullet points and then moving on back to the old ways again pretty soon after you're gone? It's more of a ladder, but I have to tell you, I'm at a crossroad and a pause because I'm a big fan. And long before I was formally trained in lean or systems-based transformation, I did all that. I've got the certification, but long before that, I was young in my career and I was one of those people that I, I need to go see what they're talking about. Because when I was running an anesthesia department, I had to go to the OR to see you know, what's going on. Uh, so I've always been like that. But where I'm stepping back from um, consulting, unless it's on my own, I've done a lot of independent work with consulting firms. I won't do it. And the reason why is because they all check the box and they all quietly say to me, well, Ian, this is a client that pays the, you know, pays us. And then, you know, they pay us a lot. And I'm like, wait a minute. So, you know, I, I can't name names, but I can think of engagements where they're still in there three years later. And one of the challenges I had was they said they couldn't afford nurses. Well, okay. Well, when you have a consulting firm here for three years, who's really not effective, <laughs> you know, of course you can't afford nurses. So I have a really tainted view of the whole consulting world because that's how they make their money. And um, they end up becoming puppets and yes, people just like the administration does that's internal. So I don't want to be party to that. And, um, Financially, I've walked away and it's not the most prudent thing for me. But on the other hand, I it, it just I just have an ethical, moral compass and I'm too passionate about patient care and the care teams. Nurses have woken up and the best are recognizing you can charge out at three to four times your rate. You can pay the firm that placed you at 20 or 30 percent and you still come out way ahead. Why would a nurse, which is the backbone of hospital care, 
why wouldn't that break the hospitals? I'm I, again, this, you're not a financial expert, you're not a CFO, but it seems to me if labor is the number one cost and it's ratcheting up slowly and inexorably to the point where you're now seeing the AHA calling for some kind of a mitigation legal or federal strategy to stop the market, basically, is what they're saying. I don't want to pay this anymore. This problem I've created, it's now biting me in the back. On the financial end of that, I can I started out in healthcare finance, so I'm pretty savvy in that as well. And I'm also pretty connected to uh, chief financial officers that I speak to almost daily. So the, the three areas that hospitals are being squeezed, these are hospitals that have big endowments and, you know, and these are hospitals that actually have had favorable volume increases. These are hospitals that have favorable contracts, you know, because of the size of their system. So they are doing better in many ways than a smaller system because they don't have that negotiating power. The smaller system doesn't. But the three expenses that are that are really affecting them negatively is uh, stock market performance has fluctuated. So when you've got an investment portfolio over a hundred billion, which some of them do, a few points here and there are gonna make a difference. They need that investment in can, to offset their operations. But the other thing is supply chain expenses in every sector in business has gone up. So the supply chain expenses hurting them. And then the third is the uh, contracted labor. Contracted labor, people talk about travel nurses, but what they don't talk about is pre-pandemic, a lot of hospitals had locum ED docs, locum, mm -hmm. you name the locum, radiologists, anesthesiologists, whatever, they still have it and they have it even more so and the expenses gone up. So when you look at those three big buckets, investment income, supply chain and contract labor, hospitals are taking a huge hit and the contract labor isn't gonna go away because if a hospital still needs to run a critical service, they're still gonna have to have locums I mean, there are hospitals that have locum cardiologists, locum GI, and they've had them for years, mm -hmm. long before the pandemic. Yeah. So I don't see the hospital model unraveling. I just see it slowly grinding down. You've seen some announcements this week. Half the hospitals in America that are in the big systems have lost money in 2022, which is way up. It's only about 30% in 2019. The credit agencies are starting to downgrade yep. mass the hospitals to junk bond status, some of them. Yep. For very proud names in your hometown are considered a junk bond. And they're starting to have to dip into their endowments to survive because the federal government's not going to rescue them twice. They've already spent $200 billion on a Marshall plan that padded their endowments. But I mean, I don't see a solution out there, do you? No, but I, I do see, and I don't get involved with this on LinkedIn or in any format because I'm not an expert. And I also am sensitive to communities when a community loses a hospital and how that feels to people. And as someone on LinkedIn who writes a lot about when a rural hospital or a hospital close up, you're really shutting down the community because that's the biggest employer and that's where people get their care. So I'm sensitive to that. But over the years, there's a lot of hospitals that have rotted on the vine for years, couldn't get general surgeons there and so forth, and big systems bought them, took them over. They slowly closed their emergency rooms. They you know, slowly turned them into ambulatory centers. Why? Because they couldn't support the inpatient. So there has been a need over the years to consolidate, for sure, meaning that some hospitals shouldn't stay open. But on the other hand, when you see like a hospital in Atlanta that gives 60 days notice, it's owned by a for-profit chain that's going to close in 60 days. And it's a level one trauma center with more than 400 beds. People have to say, oh my God, is it that that's not what we're used to seeing, right? 
we're used to seeing smaller hospitals being absorbed by by what you call the bigs. But I'm, what I'm trying to say is I do think there needs to be some consolidation of services. Everybody doesn't have to be everything. And we've certainly seen that over the years, which is a good thing. Not everybody should have OB. Not everybody should be a cardiovascular institute and so forth. But what concerns me is as we consolidate a lot of these so-called centers of excellence in some cases, and I'm not even talking about academic medical centers, they've really been diluted because of turnover of physicians and key clinicians, nurses and whatnot. So when you start to look at the consolidation or closure of hospitals and then closure of service in some hospitals, and the reason some of these hospitals are closing services permanently is because they don't have enough nurses to run the inpatient unit. So hospitals are closing pediatrics, hospitals are closing, losing their level two status, hospitals are closing all kinds of services because they can't staff the beds. That's just a time, I think, before we have five big systems, seven big systems, 10 big systems. I think in our lifetime, we'll see that. So again, if I'm a doctor listening to this show and I'm looking for hope from Ann Richardson, where do I go? What do I do? If it's bigs are getting bigger, if the muslin is getting muzzlier, if the heart is going weaker of, of medicine, where do I go? What do I do? What's my next move? Do I just go into DPC and forget it all? Or what do I do? Yeah. So if you still have that calling and passion, which a lot of physicians do, you should do your homework and consider an independent model. So you, you know, really before the push of DPC and uh, the DC model, People, you know, gave up their independent practice because of EMR expense and malpractice and everything else and the overhead costs. So they felt like uh, they had the golden handcuffs. They still had medical school loans, whatever the case may be. So they became part of a system. But I think, I mean, physicians are smart. Let's face it. They, you know, they're intelligent people. They should do their homework and talk to their colleagues. And maybe it's people they don't know, but there's enough literature out there that they could network to find out what their options are. And if, if it were me, I would spend as much time as I could looking at how I could be independent. And maybe it means that I have a uh, DPC practice and I join others or, or, you know, maybe they transition to DPC. I've, I've talked to a number of people that are in the direct care model that just ripped the bandaid off and just went right into it. And it's worked for them. And they're specialists and surgeons as well. So, I mean, I do talk to some surgeons that feel that, you know, they can't do that at this stage of the career, but to me, it definitely should be a serious option that any doctor that's looking to stay in medicine should explore. There's no reason not to. You're thinking Ann and Ron don't get me because I got quarter million in school debt. I can't afford to take the hit. You don't have to take a hit. You can go in the employee, as I said, 20,000 other physicians who work for these four folks that are serving the jumbo employers. And they're good people with good scalable models that are getting incredible renewals, incredible net promoter scores from the consumer, incredible net promoter scores within glass store ratings. You can check and see what's going on. And you can start on your own and with a hundred percent success model by listening to this show. So I've given you some <laughs> bloodhound <laughs> tricks to smell it out and sniff it out yourself. You don't have to do a lot of research. Let's listen to some of the folks talking on this show. Talk to some of the doctors working with them that have had success. You don't have to guess at this, guys. And the water is warm and proven. It's just a 30-year-old model. This is not some experiment. Well, well, exactly, right. And, I, and there's a lot of um, people I find that aren't aware of that because I've actually talked to some models that have been out there for almost 30 years in Michigan and whatnot who are quite successful. 
But what I talk a lot about, because it's the truth, is, you know, I say to a doctor, I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know, as soon as you negotiate that contract and sign it, they do, they dangle the carrot, they'll say whatever to get you to sign. And you need to make sure that it has every single thing on there that you need and want. But also understand that even if they sign off on it, they probably won't deliver on certain things so that when you show up, um, a lot of doctors are very disappointed to find out that they don't, the hospital doesn't um, honor their contractual commitment. And I said, second, they're going to forget your name. As soon as you sign that, you, you don't even have a name anymore. And go ask any executive in a hospital and mid-level management, name the chiefs, name the chairs, you know, name, they, they don't, they don't know. And, and so many doctors are labeled and treated in such a such a disrespectful manner until that executive needs that specialty to take care of them and then all of a sudden they call people like me and i've been flipping i'd say wait a minute you can't have it both ways i thought that doctor and i repeat the label they gave him i said how did that doctor go from this label that you gave them to now all of a sudden you want me to fit your wife in or your husband in or something and and i said you know you, you really ought to think about that because this doctor is a mother, is a sister, a brother, you know, whatever the case may be. And they're a human being. And the day they decide to leave, you know, you've lost your cash cow and your ATM. So I speak a lot about that. And, I, and so I'm not popular sometimes on the inside with administration. That's the problem is because I can't be complicit like them and treat the people who take care of patients as poorly as a lot of administrators do. All right, big hospitals, watch out. What's coming January of next year? It's going to be like. <laughs> and and how do people find you if they want to reach out to you? So the only platform I'm on right now is on LinkedIn, and I go under Ann M as in Marie Richardson. I have a website, but it's not live right now, and I'm and the reason for that is because I keep pausing and refining what it is that I want to do. And uh, so that I hopefully will have launched in the next couple of months. But LinkedIn is probably the best place. I am active. I am on it every day. And I do tend to write stories, true stories that come to me and share with people. Thank you for doing that, too, by the way. So, Anne, if you could fly a banner over America with one message, what's that message? So uh, and I have people that reach out to me that I feel I'm a little uncomfortable at times because I feel like I scare them. But I believe strongly in us doing whatever we can to educate and create awareness, not only in the medical world in terms of what nurses and doctors and other clinicians have for options for staying in medicine, but also the public. And the public is not aware of a lack of advocacy, uh, not because doctors and nurses don't care, but because they're punished if they advocate too much. Every single doctor that I've talked to in the last 12 months that's lost their job or they didn't have a contract renewed, it was because they were too vocal about patient advocacy. So. I feel that even that that should be a huge growing service is patient advocacy. I think patients need advocates outside of the hospitals to navigate their care. And I think that we need to increase public awareness more around that in terms of the dangers of going into a hospital where your team is silenced. So the banner would read, don't be silenced. Yeah, I I shared it with you. I was recently on the whistleblower show for Amazon, which I didn't want to be on. I balked because I didn't like the title. I figured that would be the last nail in my coffin from ever being hired. But I, re I relented and I agreed. But my, what I blew the whistle on is the silencing in medicine. What kind of a patient wants to go to a hospital and know that their doctors can't really advocate on their behalf? And that's the fact. Yeah.
close the door, look left over the right shoulder. You know that that's one of those hospitals, which is every hospital. Okay, well, and thank you for being on the show, and we'll get you back and see what this looks like in a year. Yes, I, I'm frightened because, you know, you and I are patients too, so we have to advocate for ourselves. Absolutely. Thanks again, Ann. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.